Hello, this is Pastor John Willingham of Doralstown Presbyterian Church. As our podcast audience continues to grow, I want to thank our loyal listeners and welcome those who may have just recently found us. We know that life can quickly become busy, so this podcast offers an on-the-go opportunity to hear a Sunday sermon along with the scripture lesson read by that day's lay leader or preacher. We also encourage you to visit our website at dtownpc.org to learn more about our church and all of our diverse ministries. Thank you for tuning in. Our New Testament reading this morning comes from Paul's letter to the church in Rome. We're reading from the seventh chapter. You can find this passage on page 157 in the New Testament portion of your pew Bible as we begin with the 14th verse. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am under the flesh, sold into slavery under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good, but in fact it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is in my flesh, I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I that do it, but the sin that dwells within me. So, I find it to be a law that when I want to do what is good, evil lies close at my hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self. But I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members, wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then, with my mind, I am a slave to the law of God, but with my flesh. I'm a slave to the law of sin. Let us pray. We give thanks, O God, for your living word to us. For moments like this, when we can gather together and grow in our understanding of your call and of our need for you. We pray that in this moment, led by your spirit, that we might hear the word that you intend for us in this moment, and that the same Spirit might lead us as we seek to grow in faithful living. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. During the summer at DPC, we are focusing, all the sermons are deriving from texts found in the Old Testament book of Judges. We are spending this time dwelling with that less familiar part of Scripture, and in particular, listening in to the accounts of those individuals of ancient Israel who were known as judges. We have discovered that those persons did more than simply settle disputes in a courtroom, and that many times they were out leading the army in battle as well. And over the course of this 
time together, we really will only hear of three of the 12 judges that are mentioned in that book. We have spent a couple of weeks talking about Deborah, the only woman on that list. Towards the end of the summer, we will spend five weeks hearing the account of Samson, the judge that I would suspect is the most familiar one to many of us. For all of July, we are listening in and pondering the life of a judge named Gideon. Pauline began us in this book last week when she reminded us that Gideon was this farmer who was hiding wheat from the Midianite invaders when an angel of God appeared to him and said that God had chosen him as the very one to lead the people of Israel to freedom. Gideon wasn't thrilled with that assignment. He named a couple of objections. He requested a sign to show that God, in fact, was with him. And when all of those demands were granted, he was still terrified. And so God appeared and spoke directly to that man, reassuring him, giving him peace. And in response, Gideon built an altar to the Lord. Our text picks up at that point in the narrative where God returns to Gideon and gives him some very detailed instructions, as he says. Take your father's bull, the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that belongs to your father and cut down the sacred pole that is beside it. Baal was the god of fertility for the Midianites and their Canaanite neighbors. And throughout the region, there were these shrines, that an altar and this wooden pole. Apparently, Gideon's own father had one of those shrines and oversaw it. And God was giving him the task of tearing it down. Once he completes that work, there is more that Gideon is to do. And once again, the Almighty is very specific. As he says, he is to build an altar on the top of the stronghold here in proper order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the sacred pole that you shall cut down. And Gideon gathers ten of his servants and carries out these instructions from God. But the narrator lets us know that he's really not thrilled still with having to do this work. As we're told that because Gideon was afraid of his family and of the townspeople, he carried out the altar's destruction under the cover of darkness. We soon learn that he has cause to be afraid. For this shrine is a source of income for his family. Its presence in the community is every bit as significant as this sanctuary has been for generations of Presbyterians in Doylestown. And so when the people the next morning see it's destroyed, they say, who has done this? And apparently the ones who helped getting in the task really aren't so great at keeping a secret. For when the mob asks around, someone says, well, Gideon, the son of Joash, did it. And so they go to the family home and they demand of the father 
hand over Gideon so that we can put him to death. Well, in response, his father not only protects his son, but turns things around as he says, will you contend for Baal or will you defend his cause? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by mourning. If he is a God, let him contend for himself because his altar has been pulled down. And even though the narrator doesn't tell us this, the mob must have dispersed at that point. For our passage simply ends with the words, Therefore on that day Gideon was called Jerob Baal. That is to say, let Baal contend against him because he had pulled down the altar. Now, as we proceed in the narrative in the coming weeks, that second name, Jerob Baal, will appear once again. But we stop on this morning to consider the significance of this new name that has been given to Gideon. There are all kinds of times in the Bible when a name carries particular significance and moments when there's a change of name to signal a new responsibility for this servant of God. And so Abram and Sarai become Abraham and Sarah in the moment that the covenant with God is established. Jacob, after wrestling with an angel all night, is renamed Israel, but not only because he had prevailed, but because he will now be the namesake for God's people. Jesus called a disciple named Simon and said to him, you will be called Peter, for you will be the rock upon whom I build my church. For Gideon, too, this new name, Jeroboam, signifies the task that is now his as a judge of Israel. Namely, that he is to help the people resist these foreign gods and remain faithful to the one true God. Heard in that light, it has this kind of taunting affect. As if from that moment forward, Gideon will be able to say to the people, all of you adherents of Baal, come at me. I'm ready for you. And yet, as we will see in the weeks ahead, that name Jeroboam is a foreshadowing of what Gideon will do. For there are times when he moves forward and he is confident, and other times when he is afraid. There are other times when he's ready to do exactly what God wants him to do, and other moments when he insists first that there be other signs given. There are moments when he is successful in resisting himself and helping the people stand up to these foreign gods, and there will be a time toward the end of his life when Gideon, in fact, encourages people to build idols to other gods. Thus, that double name, Gideon, Jeroboam, reflects the struggle that will be present in that believer moving forward to do all that God wants him to do. And it is that same struggle which is ours as well. My parents named me John Mark. And in my baby book, 
in my mother's handwriting, they explained it's they were naming me after the writer of the Gospel of Mark. Now, certainly at that time, they didn't know I would grow up to become a pastor. And yet, as I think about it, that name John Mark is significant for me. For in my vocational life, I have also sought to help people hear and claim the good news of Jesus for themselves. Mark is the shortest of the four Gospels. And in my sermons, I strive to follow that adage that less is more. John Mark was the companion with Silas, or with uh, Peter, with Paul and Barnabas on their missionary trips. And I've always loved to travel myself. In fact, the only place that I would suggest that there's a break between my namesake and this John Mark is towards the end of that gospel, in the moment of Jesus' arrest, there's this unnamed young man who's believed to have been the author himself, who at the time of Jesus' arrest, he runs away and his garment covering his body is taken away and we're told that the man ran away naked. This John Mark, has never been a streaker. <laughs> and yet, when I think about that double name of Gideon Jerobeal, for me what it really points us to, no matter what our double name, is that we have taken on the name of Christian. We have committed in our own ways as a follower of Jesus to grow in understanding what he had said and done and how that is to be reflected in our lives. And we make progress in that work, but we will never fully reflect that name. The Apostle Paul talks about that for himself. In that passage that we heard read from the letter to the Romans, when he says this, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. He goes on to speak of that inner conflict in his own journey as one between knowledge and the power of sin, between the law and, and, and in gained insight. And he concludes, I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Notice Paul is not talking about moments when he falls short of being a Christian, when he doesn't understand the calling. For you and me, as believers in the 21st century, there are times still when we want to respond to what is happening in our life or the world around us, and the Christian path is murky. Times when it isn't altogether clear exactly how Jesus would want us to respond. That's not what Paul's talking about. Paul is talking about moments when he knows clearly what Jesus would have him do. When he knows clearly what Jesus would have him not do, and yet he doesn't follow that guidance. And in that self-acknowledgement, I think he points to a struggle that is present at times in all of us. 
I heard a story a number of years ago about a school teacher who lost her life savings with this swindler who had spelled out this, this wonderful opportunity that turned out to be empty. It was after she had lost all that she had saved that she went to the Better Business Bureau. And the person who was there said, why did you come to us after that? Hadn't you heard of the business, Better Business Bureau before? And that sad woman said, yes, I had always known of you. But I was afraid if I came to you, you would tell me not to do it. That's what Paul is acknowledging. He is speaking of how in his own life, there are moments when he was clear about what he was supposed to do and didn't do it. When he was clear about he was not supposed to do, and yet he did it even so. I don't understand my own actions, he said. Think about that confession. This is one whose name was changed from Saul to Paul. The one who had been the great persecutor of the church and who became its greatest apologist. The one who served as the author for almost half of our New Testament. That's the one who said, I don't understand myself. I don't understand the things that I do. He goes on to say, now, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. But in fact, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. And he asked this question, who will rescue me from this body of faith? And then answers, thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. What he's acknowledging is this reality that Gideon Jeroboam saw, what John Mark sees, and what I suspect you can see in yourself as well. These very times when we stumble, even though we know what Christ would have us to do, and wonder about how we can get out. Some of you may have heard of the country music group called Love and Theft. They were created in 2006, and according to their website, they have a new album coming out this month, but to this point, their greatest commercial success occurred about 10 years ago. It was during that period of time that my family and I saw them play in Camden, as a warm-up act for Tim McGraw. But we had first heard of Love and Theft because one of the founding members of that group, a young man named Eric Gunderson, grew up on our street in North Carolina. And his wife worked with Lori in an internist's office. One of their big hits was something called Dancing in Circles, where he talks about, or they talk about, this reality of how we know what we're supposed to do, 
and we still fall short of it. Now, I know Eric and his family were very active in a church, in our community, in Matthews. And if you listen closely, you can hear in some of the lyrics scripture that they are referencing. I'm going to show you a brief clip from the video that accompanied that song. And so for those of you who are in the sanctuary and those of you who are watching us live, I'm confident you will be able to see it. I'm not so sure when YouTube's algorithm clicks in as to what might happen to those who are tuning in later, but would encourage all of you at some point to go and look at the whole video of this group called Love and Theft, their song Dancing in Circles. And in this particular glimpse that you will see, Eric is the singer on the left. Why do we go dancing in circles? Why do we carry out the very things that we know God would not want us to do and avoid those acts God would have us offer? Why is it in the words of Paul that we do not do the things we love and will do the very things we hate? It's for the simple reason that we are human. And whether our name is Gideon, Jeroboam, or whether it is Saul, Paul, you and I will never reach the place where we fully and in every moment reflect this name that we have taken of Jesus. Which is why we are reminded again of our need for a Savior who is able to redeem our feeble efforts and who will do so time after time. A gift that permits us to join with that believer of the past in simply declaring, thanks be to God. Let us pray. We give thanks, O oh God, for your incredible patience with us. We thank you for those moments when we are hearing your word clearly and are able to act upon it and confess those times when we have heard it and yet still take a different path. Forgive us, we ask. Restore us, we pray. 
and lead us in a path more reflective of this name that we treasure. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us today. Once again, I invite you to check out dtownpc.org for information about our worship and programming for all ages.